Well, Greg, here we are again with another podcast. I'm stuck in Boston, and you're finally back in Denver. Where have you been off to? Well, I've been running around, John, you know, trying to promote flight safety detectives. I, uh, I just got back from Prescott, Arizona. I was uh, the keynote speaker at Embry-Riddle's President Safety Day down there. So I want to thank um, Dr. Carlson, who is the, the new chancellor down there. She's been there about two years now. Um, and Dan McCune, who is uh, their vice president of safety at the, the university for inviting me down to uh, talk to the 127 flight instructors that they have. Their, their flight program down in Prescott uh, basically doubled over the last year and a half. They're expecting almost 900 flight students this year. So uh, they did a, a great job as usual with their safety day, trying to not only have, of course, me giving some uh, words of wisdom, but then they have a breakout session. So uh, I was very honored to be down there at my alma mater. And of course, uh, sat through several of the presentations and uh, they were very well conducted and received. So it's good to be back uh, doing an episode of Flight Safety Detectives with you. And um, I'm looking forward to talking about uh, Korean Air Flight 801, something that I know a little bit about. Yeah, you spent, uh, you spent some time over there in Guam. Yeah, I did. I think that I think there's some information there that uh, people will want to hear. Absolutely. So. Before we get started, I'd like to remind everybody, but today's show is being brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, and by Avemco, our premier in general aviation insurance company. And uh, we've had some uh, recent experience with Avemco out in in. Uh, Oshkosh. Yep. And I, I tell you what, when I mention Avemco, I just I just think uh, of how impressed I was with the people out there, their yeah. knowledge of aviation. I listened to them talk to to uh, people that came up to the booth. They had a pretty big booth. It must have been 20 feet long. And uh, it was impressive. And I, I can see why, too. Part of the, the other thing that impressed me is the fact that they actually have a simulator in their facility, which they, their employees use uh, to understand flying and maybe understand what their customers are trying to tell them sometimes. Yeah. So it's no, fun. it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very impressed. I'm very happy that they're a sponsor of ours. And of course, uh, um, I have firsthand experience with Avemco and I can't endorse them any more than I already have over the last uh, 80 plus shows that we've done. Uh, the, the big thing is, is that uh, when you're looking for insurance, you want somebody that one definitely has the knowledge. They aren't going to pass you off and uh, you're going to get some uh, quick responses because, uh, you know, right now. And John, I'm telling you, I don't know what's going on. I know that uh, you've talked about it uh, on these podcasts, but we have had another run of accidents. Of course, I'm uh, I'm really concerned about almost I think there was 12 flight instruction related accidents over a three week period, which I'm really concerned about what's going on with flight instruction. But uh, just looking uh, in the last week, week and a half, we've had uh, five or six fatal accidents uh, that have come to our attention. I'm, I'm, I haven't really looked at all the, uh, the notifications, but you know, it, it's very disconcerting that uh, we're having, you know, these fatal accidents 
especially in a short period of time. It's almost like we're in a hurry to catch up, make up for lost time because we last year was a, a relatively good year. Yeah. But that was because of the pandemic and the and the uh, flying that did not happen. Yeah. This year, it seems like everybody's rushing to catch up with their flying and making mistakes, maybe because they're rusty. They haven't been out there flying for over a year. And, and you know, I don't know what it is. It needs, you know, the NTSB and the FAA need to take a good look at these accidents and uh, try to figure out if there are any common themes like the two that uh, I just mentioned. Yeah. Try to get a handle on them. Well, I had sent you a, uh, a picture of a landing gear <laughs> that uh, I came across where it uh, was fortunate that the gear didn't fail, but there was a huge crack in the trunnion. And, um, you know, when we talk about pre-flight and we talk about, you know, looking at things and touching things, it's not just a matter of walking around the aircraft. It's, it's actually looking in and inspecting. Uh, what you're looking at. And a lot of times the landing gear is overlooked. It's, it's given a superficial look, especially when it comes to, you know, how much chrome you see on the strut and things like that. Those are very, very critical issues because if you have a flat strut, you're going to have problems on landing or even takeoff. But in the, uh, the picture that I sent you, that, that trunnion was cracked. And uh, had there been way more flight on it, uh, of course, that gear would have failed. Yes, yes. Good pre-flight's important in uh, our pilots, and we're going to talk about this here in the near future, but what, what is a good pre-flight? You know, and actually a good flight planning starts even before the pre-flight yep. inside. And we, re- we stressed that at Vemco in, in our presentations there and our, in the, the discussions we had with people, we kept uh, talking to them about, making sure there's a good pre-flight, you know, and I meant, I think I mentioned once before in here about one email that we got from a, an airline captain who actually has changed the way he does his pre-flight because of what we have said. I hope, yeah. I hope the GA pilots uh, take heed and, and do a better job and touch your airplane. Don't just look at it, touch it. Yeah, no, it's uh, it is one of those things where if uh, you're looking to have success uh, in your flight, you know, the pre-flight, of course, make sure that the aircraft is airworthy because that's the responsibility of the pilot, um, especially since the FARs 91.3 tell you that. Uh, but of course, then uh, good flight planning as well, because uh, everybody plans for, you know, the A plan, but you always have to have the bailout, the Bs and the Cs. And, uh, and we're, we're going to get more into depth with, uh, with those types of uh, discussions here in the near future. But the accident at hand that we're going to talk about today is one, of course, that uh, I had the opportunity to, uh, to be the investigator in charge of. It uh, was a fatal accident that occurred back in 1997 on August 5th. And um, I ended up getting launched with a team out of Washington uh, to Guam to investigate uh, the fatal accident of uh, Korean Air Flight 801. It was a Boeing 747-300, so it was the larger version just before the new 400s came out. And uh, they were flying from Seoul, Kimpo Airport, to Guam. And uh, that was really, it's a junket flight, if you will. 
it's a flight that, uh, from what I understood, because uh, the shopping is pretty good in Guam, <laughs> Uh, a lot of the folks that are on that airplane go over there, spend the weekend shopping, and then go back. And uh, that was one of these trips. The uh, The guy that was involved with uh, the accident as the captain on this particular flight really set the stage for the entire sequence of events that were to follow and resulted in uh, in this fatal accident. Um, and uh, it, again, it, we're going to go through the details here, but, uh, you know, like every other accident, John, uh, the, you know, the sequence of events really started well before those pilots ever got on the airplane. Uh, it certainly did in this case. I was just reading the report a half hour ago and, and the events that occurred before they left Seoul with this guy getting rescheduled at the last minute because he was out of time. So he's already reaching the maximum duty day and, and uh, they give him a different flight just, just to save the, the flight and put him on the road. And he, he on the flight recorder, a uh, data recorder, voice recorder, excuse me, uh, he actually says more than once about him being tired. Yeah. So he wasn't running on all, all cylinders. And as you read the recorder, and we'll go through that in a minute, but it becomes painfully obvious that he was, he was slow to react and sometimes didn't even react at all to the events occurring around him. And, yep. and the other two guys in the cockpit, they raised it, but not forcefully. Yeah, and we're going to get into that because, uh, as I've talked about um, over the years, uh, there is a, I still believe that there is a cultural issue that exists in these cockpits. And, um, and I think that this was a demonstration of that. And we'll talk about it. The board didn't really get into the societal culture. I've been preaching that we need to do more about that. It's one thing to, uh, to train pilots with CRM where, you know, there are no barriers that uh, there's a free flow of information and things like that. And while it sounds good and looks good on paper, and we've done a very good job here in the United States and other places around the world of breaking those barriers down so that we don't have um, that hierarchy, that, uh, that authority where other folks in the cockpit are reluctant to speak up. Um, I think that this is a demonstration where assertiveness versus aggressiveness, especially as the situation was starting to degrade, um, was necessary. And that kind of aggressiveness by the first or first officer and or the flight engineer just wasn't there. And we'll get into that. But, you know, to set the stage, it was uh, it was a late night departure coming out of Kimpo. So they were going to be flying uh, backside of the clock flying to get into uh, Guam in the early morning hours of the next day, August 6th. And um, it wasn't a difficult flight. There was nothing going on in route after takeoff. Um, they did have their pre-flight briefing opportunities before they took off. They do self-briefings. Uh, they reviewed the NOTAMs and were aware that as they went into Guam, that the instrument landing system or ILS approach was not necessarily in service. It wasn't out of service, only a part of it was out of service. And that was the glide slope had been taken out of service. So that, that resulted in the fact that they could still shoot a, uh, 
an instrument approach there. It was just going to be the localizer only, which is a non-precision approach versus a precision approach. And so they were aware of that by NOTAM. And of course, in route, uh, when they were about 100 or so miles out, the captain did a briefing with the other two crew members and reiterated the fact that um, the ILS uh, was out of service, that is the glide slope was out of service or unreliable, unusable, and that they would be shooting a localizer approach. They talked about the minimums and, um, and everybody through the briefing apparently understood it. There were no uh, major discussions that were recorded on the cockpit voice recorder regarding that. Um, as the captain briefed the minimum um, step downs because this approach, the localizer approach is a step down approach. One of the things it incorporates in the approach is the VOR because that's where they get the distance measuring or the DME distances. It is not co-located with the ILS and localizer um, systems on the airport. And that was a that was a huge issue in this accident. We'll talk about it when we uh, when we dissect the uh, the training aspects of this particular flight crew. But uh, so the VOR is incorporated into this because they're picking the DME off the VOR, and that is um, a critical part of the approach. So as uh, as the airplane was coming around the horn, getting lined up, they were talking to uh, the controllers. Um, at the airport in Guam at Aganya and um, the controller, they were using some non-standard language. They didn't really use um, appropriate uh, procedures as outlined in the air traffic control handbook uh, with regard to giving position reports to the flight crew as they were being lined up on the approach. I think, John, one of the critical things was that in this, in this part of the world, you get these uh, quick building, what they call top hat type thunderstorms, where they're very isolated. Um, they stack, you know, straight up. They look like top hats, if you will. That's why they uh, characterize them as top hat thunderstorms. They're, you know, very small in diameter, but of course they can create an obscuration, especially if they're strategically placed um, on the approach, which in this case, one of those thunderstorms had built up on the final approach course between um, this crew and the airport. So as they were coming around, even from 100 miles out, they could actually see the airport. And they mentioned that on the cockpit voice recorder that they had Guam in sight. So the visibility was good. There was an airplane. There was an Air Micronesia aircraft that had landed about 30 minutes prior to this airplane. They reported excellent visibility. They, uh, they did not have any kind of uh, thunderstorm or convective activity on the approach that it uh, would have obscured their, um, their VFR approach or visual approach to the airport. And in, again, in this case, that's what the, the crew was briefing for. Now, a lot of these uh, flight crews, especially over in that part of the world, as here in the United States, use the instrument system as, of course, a backup. That is, they set the ILS, um, you know, for glide slope um, type information. But in this case, they were intending to shoot a visual approach. They used, of course, the ILS. They were cleared for the ILS runway six left approach. And there was some confusion, and we'll talk about that here in a second as well. 
but <clears throat> they were cleared for the ILS approach. The airplane was maneuvered uh, by the captain. He was the flying pilot onto uh, the final approach course. And of course there was the, uh, the two-way communication with the controller and the flight crew with regard to um, uh, clearances and, and usability of the, uh, the ILS, actually the glide slope portion of the ILS. But uh, as they were making the approach, they got established on final. They were running their checklists. The first officer was prompting the captain for specific things on the checklist. They reconfigured the airplane. And as they were um, uh, turning into the final, all of a sudden, this discussion about whether or not the glide slope portion of the ILS became very prominent in the discussion. They already knew, and they briefed it multiple times. If I remember last count, even before they got on final, they had, they had talked about the fact that the glide slope portion of the ILS was unusable. They talked about it four times. So they all knew that the glide slope was not working and it could not be oh, used. actually mentioned that to them as well. And the controller mentioned to mentioned that to them when they were given their landing clearance. So now you got five times that this has been reinforced. They get established on final and whatever the captain was looking at led him to believe, or at least prompted him to say, is the glide slope working? And the other two pilots, the, the first officer and the flight engineer chime in and Again, this whole conversation became uh, a prominent discussion um, at a critical point in time when it should have really been ignored. But the captain kept saying, is, is it working? Is it working? And the other two crew members kind of bought into that discussion rather than, you know, dismiss it as don't worry about it. It isn't working. So let's not have this discussion anymore. And it, uh, it became evident that possibly and more than likely the captain thought that the uh, the glide slope was in fact working for whatever reason even though he should have never ever followed it you can tell from the data recorded on the flight data recorder that the airplane got into what looks like a constant rate descent not by a systematic approach through using the automation for that constant rate descent but in fact uh, possibly the uh, captain following a false glide slope. All, all <clears> that, lies that aren't connected to anything. And, and of course, part of the investigation was to determine whether or not, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a spurious signal that, uh, that would have led to a false glide slope. Nonetheless, as they were coming down, uh, there were multiple warnings given to the flight crew through the automation of the GPWS triggering not only altitude callouts, but of course, a sync rate callout, and then the countdown, the altitude countdowns. Now, when you look at the approach, and I would, I would suggest, and we'll put it up on our website, a link to the, uh, the NTSB report and uh, we'll pull some excerpts of the approach played out so you can actually see the step down and uh, we'll pull the data that uh, was plotted in pictorial form of the actual uh, 
approach that the aircraft was uh, flew. But this approach is a little different because as I said before, the localizer approach is a non-precision approach. So you're only using the localizer as lateral guidance to line you up with the runway. The DME, the distance measuring equipment that is used to give you the, the pilot a distance from their current position to wherever that DME uh, station is, that in this case was co-located at the VOR and the VOR was approximately six miles from the runway. So in order to successfully fly and understand your position in space with relation to the airport, you would count down to zero because you're gonna pass by or pass over the VOR. So the DME is gonna to count to zero and then you have to count back up six miles. And when you get to the six, you should be at the airport. Well, this, is a, this was a big issue uh, with regard to training because all of the flight crews, as we found out when we got into a, an examination of the pilot training that took place, at Korean Air was that the approaches that were used during all phases of training for all the aircraft were done at the local airport in the simulator. So Kimpo was the airport. They would fly an ILS, a VOR, an NDB approach. Remember, this is 1997, so we didn't really have uh, you know, GPS overlays at that time, and, and they weren't really prominent. So all of the required approaches were flown to Kimpo Airport, where in fact, the DME is co-located at the airport. So in order to determine your position relative to the airport, you would count down to zero. And typically when you got to zero, you should be at the airport. That was their standardized training. We found this in this particular accident to be an issue because the crew counting down to zero may have been confused and it was obvious they were confused um, just by the discussions on the uh, CVR and what we analyzed um, based on other discussions that the crew was kind of confused as to where they were in relation to the airport. They were established on the localizer, but they did not fly the required step downs of the localizer approach. They actually uh, descended prematurely out of 2000 feet down to uh, their minimum step down of 1440 feet. And, um, and that was done about two miles too soon. And again, as they got into a constant rate descent, which they shouldn't have done, uh, they were counting down to zero. And when you see the, the location of the accident site, uh, and we'll put that picture up as well, that airplane hit the ground adjacent to the VOR, right at the zero DME. Even though the crew got multiple warnings, especially the GPS, uh, GPWS warnings, they never reacted to it. And in one case where the sink rate warning um, uh, was heard on the CVR, the first officer dismissed the sink rate warning. Now, we don't know exactly what that prompted him to dismiss it. Was he looking at the altimeter and thinking, well, okay, the sink rate isn't, you know, we're not sinking. 
Uh, the altimeter isn't unwinding. We don't know if he was looking at the BSI and believed that because they were getting close to the airport that that was okay and he dismissed it. Or was it because as the airplane approached Nimitz Hill, which is six miles off the end of the runway, the rapid rise in the terrain is what triggered the GPWS. And so, of course, the, the FO dismissed the sink rate warning, but it was followed shortly thereafter with minimums and then other altitude callouts. That right there, that whole sequence, John, that created a level of discussion and some confusion amongst the, the two pilots and the flight engineer. And let me just set you up as well is that this captain was a senior captain. He had almost 9,000 hours of total flight time. He had quite a bit in the 747 as both the first officer and a captain. Uh, the FO was uh, about 5,000 hours with uh, a lot of the time in the 747. But the senior statesman on the airplane was the flight engineer. Flight engineer had uh, almost 11,500 hours in the, uh, in the air. And a lot of it was as a flight engineer on the 7-4. And when you really look at it in the big picture, at the very end of the whole discussion and the, the whole accident sequence and the facts, conditions, and circumstances, the guy who was most plugged in was the flight engineer. And, um, and, and it became evident in the discussions that took place in the final seconds of this, uh, of this accident. Um, the captain got locked on, believing that that glide slope, for whatever reason, was valid. Um, it's apparent that he may have tried to continue to fly that glide slope, despite the fact that the, um, the first officer and the flight engineer became aware that they were not near the airport. And in fact, both of them were not assertive or aggressive in recommending to the captain to go missed approach or go around. And they used both those terms, missed approach and go around. Um, I call it hinting and hoping. They kind of threw it out as, Captain, we should go missed approach. Captain, we should go missed approach. It was more of a suggestion than a, a real command. And it wasn't done in a very assertive or aggressive way with any real sense of urgency that we could tell. And so, of course, while they were processing that information and the airplane is still motoring along at two and a half miles a minute on the approach, the captain, when he finally decided that he was going to conduct the missed approach, by the time he powered up and he pulled up and the pull up was not as you would have expected either to do any kind of CFIT escape maneuver, even though they were getting the GPWS warnings, and it wasn't assertive enough or aggressive enough to even suggest a normal missed approach or go around type procedure. The power came up and it was only a matter of, you know, five, six, seven seconds from the time the power came up, the airplane was still settling to the airplane to react. They ended up striking the ground. And we analyzed that as the NTSB that had the pilot reacted, the captain reacted at least 12 seconds before when he was getting these first indications that uh, he was close to terrain and that they really weren't where they should have been, as that is the airport. Had he performed this missed approach or go around maneuver 
at least 12 seconds or more before, we wouldn't be talking about this accident. The airplane would have cleared Nimitz Hill by at least 400, 450 feet. But we are where we are. Um, of the 230 plus people that were on the airplane, there were some survivors. Uh, both, uh, none of the flight crew survived, but there were flight attendants and a number of passengers that did survive. Some of them did succumb to their injuries, um, either at the accident site or in route and at the hospital, uh, but there were survivors. But through this entire investigation, um, there, there became very evident that even though this was a professional flight crew that had just gone through and had been going through a very uh, standardized and comprehensive training program, we identified issues that compromised safety um, with training, with, uh, with human factors, that is the fatigue, and a number of things that occurred after the accident with first responders, emergency response, and of course the FAA, that is the air traffic controller, and a piece of equipment that was intended to provide at least some altitude uh, alerting to the controller and the flight crew. And that was the minimum safe altitude warning system or MSAW system that's in place that provides guidance to the controller that a, an aircraft may be too low at certain points on the approach and, um, and the controller then issue an MSAW alert or low altitude alert to the crew to get their attention. So. With all that being said, John, there is a lot to talk about. <laughs> oh, there sure is. There sure is. And so I'll, I'll keep with the routine that I used the last time. So you are in Washington and the bell goes off. What happened? Well, we were, uh, <laughs> we were trying to get to Guam um, going by way of commercial airline. It was going to take us basically almost three days. So we were able to, uh, to work with the Air Force, and um, the team was able to jump a ride on a, a C-141 out of Andrews Air Force Base, military transport, large cargo transport airplane. Sure it wasn't a VIP service. <laughs> Not in this particular instance. Uh, it was a lot different than flying on the FAA's Gulfstream. Um, we showed up at Andrews. We got all checked in, and here we are in the, uh, in the belly of a cargo airplane with, um, with troop carriers. That is uh, very uncomfortable seats, hammock type seats, the netted type seats. And we were flying with a bunch of cargo. And um, it was uh, a long ride from Andrews and we had to go up to uh, Fairchild Air Force Base in Washington State. That was, uh, that was our stopover, but we were also gonna have to transfer airplanes because the 141 wasn't going on to Guam. So we ended up uh, spending some time at Fairchild. The Air Force was very accommodating to us, uh, took very good care of us while we were on the ground. And then uh, we jumped on a, uh, a KC-135. Typically it's a refueling tanker airplane. Um, uh, this one uh, didn't have the tank in the belly. We were able to, uh, to utilize that airplane to get us up to, uh, to Guam. The problem with that, John, is one, it is not a comfortable airplane, just like the 141, where um, we were already working on a long day. We, were, we knew that when we got to, uh, to Guam, we were going to have to start working. 
So of course the accommodations were as best as they could be. There are no flight attendants. Uh, the box lunch was just what it was, cardboard box lunch. Um, and on that airplane, the environmental system is not as cozy as on uh, a civilian commercial aircraft. You have a uh, one pack that heats and one pack that cools. So it was either real hot or real cold back there. <laughs> so uh, that kept the team a bit entertained and, uh, you know, on guard a little bit. But uh, we did survive the, uh, the trip. It uh, was a long trip for, for us. But when we got to Guam, uh, it was the early morning hours. And, um, and again, the process now needs to start. So you got to clear your head and, um, and, and begin this investigation. Uh, Guam being a U.S. territory, that made it our responsibility to conduct the investigation as the National Transportation Safety Board. And we were going to be utilizing the services of not only the Air Force, um, but the, the Navy did help us uh, to an extent while we were there. And of course, we needed all of the, uh, the local authorities in Guam to, uh, to assist in this particular investigation. And I, I recall uh, when you presented to the board, which I was one of, uh, I recall the discussion around uh, the initial scene and uh, all the problems with, with uh, the rescue recovery effort. And it, uh, it, I remember thinking at the time that it was like a, a replay of the Korean Airlines 747 that crashed on, uh, I've forgotten the name of the mountain, in, uh, in Japan when they blew out the bulkhead on the back. Oh, of the- Japan Airlines, yeah. 747, yes. So, I, yep. so as you were describing it, and the survival factors folks were des- describing that, that's what came to mind for me was how, uh, you know, it's like 10 years difference in time, but how similar that they, these two events were. So, you know, when you got there, you got to see the, the uh, rescue and recovery. And what did you see? Well, you know, John, that you know, one of the things is, is yes, we, tr- we try to expedite in getting there. And we did. We got there uh, late the next day uh, after the accident. And of course, uh, the first course of business is to try and take the team out and get a lay of the land and look at what it is that uh, we're up against as far as terrain and how we're going to conduct the investigation. It's a very choreographed operation. And of course, we always have to worry about site safety, making sure that everybody is is, uh, safe when they're doing their respective jobs out at the accident site. Um, There were still recovery operations going on because even though the airplane only crashed six miles from the airport, it was in a isolated uh, area on Nimitz Hill. Um, Access to the accident site wasn't easy. Um, It's not like there were a bunch of paved roads that you just drive up to. Uh, It was very time consuming. There are only uh, uh, very limited um, access points to get up to the top of Nimitz Hill, especially up near the VOR, uh, because there's a a very small road. One of the big issues that uh, eventually came to light in this accident was the delayed response after the accident. There was some miscommunication. Uh, The folks at the tower in Guam uh, did not know or did not make timely notification with the fact that the airplane hadn't landed. 
by the time uh, that process started, uh, quite a bit of time had already lapsed since the accident. Uh, notification, instant uh, in, initial notification was delayed as well. And when the notification was made to the local fire department, the Guam Fire Department, which is only located three miles from the accident site, we found out that uh, they did not respond uh, timely. They, uh, their response was hindered by the fact that because of the high humidity with the, uh, with the fire trucks, they uh, often bleed the brakes to drain the moisture out. It just so happened that uh, their primary fire truck that they, they would have sent out um, did not have any, uh, <laughs> any brake hydraulics. They had to service the hydraulic system, the brake system on the uh, truck before they could actually initiate the response. When you look at their response, and of course you look at the airport response, it was 52 minutes from the time of the accident till the time the first responders were able to, one, get on the road, two, get up to the accident site and actually start doing their thing. So when you look at that delayed response, that was you know almost an hour. That airplane had crashed. There was a post-crash fire. There were survivors. Um, we, we did get information about you know, how many people may have survived if the response was more timely. That became one of the biggest issues of this in investigation, John, was the survivability aspects because we did have a number of survivors. Some of them had succumbed, even though they had gotten out of the airplane, they died after they, uh, they had evacuated the aircraft wreckage. In fact, I recall having a discussion with, with, with somebody uh, on that accident when there was a, uh, a flight attendant and somebody else that, that, uh, that had survived the crash but uh, had a strange twist of events that ended up having them perish. Do you remember that? Yeah, there was, um, there was uh, um, a flight attendant. They had evacuated the aircraft, got out of the aircraft, um, and as they were trying to walk downhill, because the airplane crashed on the side of a hill, so it was in more of a ravine. So there was an uphill portion of this accident site and a downhill portion. And the airplane came to rest on, on both those inclines. And as uh, the, the two people that evacuated the aircraft were walking downhill, trying to get away from the wreckage towards the tail of the airplane, one of the four engines broke loose, rolled down the hill, and struck them. And um, it, was a, it was a tragic end. They survived the accident only to be killed during the course of their evacuation from the wreckage. Now, sometimes you have no luck whatsoever. Yeah. And, and it, you know, for the team, there were a number of, of issues that came up during the course of us actually trying to conduct the accident investigation. Of course, we had to set up um, areas where victim recovery was still taking place. So we had to, to not only do our jobs, but, you know, help uh, with the, uh, the recovery of the victims. Again, it is not a very friendly terrain setting. So because it was so hostile, uh, we had to set up certain areas where we took uh, victim remains. We were, we were accommodating um, as many of the, uh, the, the um, first responders as we could while we were trying to do our job. 
But one of the biggest issues, John, that slowed us down was um, their culture, the Korean culture. In the Korean culture, which I later learned, but I had to accommodate while we were at the accident site, was the fact that um, family members, of course, we've allowed family members to visit the accident site in the recent past uh, with, uh, with regard to trying to uh, at least interact with the families in a very thoughtful way. We allowed the families to come to the accident site at a safe distance. It was up on the surrounding peaks and hills where they could actually look down on the accident site and pay homage and, and pray for their, uh, their lost loved ones and that kind of thing. The thing that was very disconcerting is that we found out that not only do the, the family members come there, but they also have uh, wailers. That is people that will scream cry. And that's part of their culture um, that we came to find out. And, and when we started to hear this, it was, it was kind of disconcerting to all of us as investigators because we hadn't been exposed to that. So once we understood what was going on, we shut the accident site down. That is, we stopped doing all the work for a short period of time to allow the families to, uh, to grieve as they would in their culture so that uh, you know, they, they felt that uh, they were accomplishing what they needed to do to honor uh, their family members. So again, we tried to accommodate that culture um, and then get back to business. And uh, you know, you start to learn a lot. And I then had to deal with a number of other issues that uh, were cultural based. When the president of Korean Airlines finally showed up, he didn't do it within uh, hours of the accident, it was days. And that too did not go over well. And we had to deal with some of the issues with family members and uh, their displeasure with the president of Korean Airlines. Those are the backstories. Those are the peripheral issues that as the investigator in charge, and of course the board member that we had on scene, which was uh, George Black, um, those are the things that he and I had to deal with while I still had to choreograph what was going on with the process of acts investigation. Yeah, most people don't realize that the board member that does accomplish or a company, uh, the team, does have a role more than just being a spokesman. Then they have to meet with the politicians. You have to you have to deal with those issues with the police, the fire, the uh, emergency services, uh, the Red Cross. Uh, the list goes on and on. Yeah, but everybody wants to help, and and uh, sometimes the help is a hindrance. Yeah. You have to, to tiptoe through the tulips there and try to not offend anybody, but uh, get our job done. And on top of that, um, with uh, with Korean Air, um, I was still finishing up the, the tail, tail end of ValueJet at the time. So it, it was all about time management for me in, in trying to worry about what's going on at this current accident, trying to finish up uh, ValueJet. Uh, with, uh, you know, that had happened, you know, a year and a half before. And so, you know, trying to, to make all of that happen. We had a great team from the NTSB. Um, the investigators worked hard under a variety of different conditions. And, um, and 
I think that this was one of the most thorough investigations of a foreign accident that we had done because there were a lot of uh, cultural issues we had to get into, the ways that the airline was doing business. Um, you know, you try to look at a standardized process. And yes, this is a, a flag carrier. It's a professional organization. They have a very structured process. But one of the, you know, when we started looking at pilot training and we looked at some of the shortcomings of pilot training and the fact that it, it, they had never, they never taught pilots or never checked pilots on how to fly these types of non-precision approaches that had unique characteristics to them, like this uh, up-down uh, DME or countdown to count up type uh, non-precision approach. They were, they were steadfast in when you got to zero, you should be at the airport. In this case, when you got to zero, you only were at the VOR and then you had to count back up. So, of course, those kinds of training shortcomings, those were the things that we pointed out. We made recommendations that they diversify their training program. And we understood because uh, a good friend of ours and a friend of this show, George Snyder, ended up going to work for Korean Air shortly after this accident. And these are the kinds of things that he had to address in his role at Korean Air. So, uh, we dissected the training, we dissected their policies, their procedures, of course, their, their crew resource management, and the fact that the uh, first officer and the flight engineer needed to be more assertive. In these conditions, it would have been that if the first officer wasn't comfortable, and definitely the flight engineer wasn't comfortable with what was going on, and they recommended or suggested or <laughs> mentioned we need to go around, we, we need to go missed approach and nothing was happening. There, there should have been some sort of um, reaction by the first officer to take command of the aircraft and initiate that process. We saw that th that didn't happen. And that may have been one, a product of their training. Two, it may have even been a product of their societal culture. Again, we've talked about it in the past. We continue to see it in different uh, circumstances, and that is you never challenge authority. Even though you're supposed to, and you work and you question whether or not one of these pilots is doing something wrong, especially the senior pilot, it was obvious that the first officer who was in a good position to take control never did, never initiated it. And in that delay of the pilot, the captain who was flying the airplane, finally realizing that they should take some sort of action, which was execute the missed approach, that delay in not only decision-making, but then execution was the difference as we determined between life and death, that 12 plus seconds, had they made the decision sooner, they, uh, they probably would not have hit the top of Nimitz Hill. You know, that whole process of who's in charge, you know, sharing power, it's, that is so difficult. It's still not, uh, uh, we're still not clear of that all here in the United States. I see it in uh, some business operations that I look at. They still, the captain is the captain and everyone else uh, <clears throat> plays second seat to him instead of the, the first officer really being an equal. And sometimes I, when I give presentations, I remind the, uh, the first officer that the crash acts in the cockpit 
isn't just there for uh, getting out of the airplane. Yeah. You know, I get a little more uh, graphic when I describe it to them, but uh, sometimes you have to take drastic action. And asking somebody in that situation, a first officer, to, to take control of an airplane or whatever uh, can be career-ending. You, know, yep. you have to be right. So what do you do? You wait until it's too late before you decide you're right? And, and you know, and, and I will continue to bring this up because um, I've traveled around the world. I've been exposed to this. I see this all the time. Um, when I did China Eastern way back in 1993, this was a, a similar issue where you had a senior captain, junior first officer. And we saw some of that dynamic in that particular uh, event as well where there were opportunities to, you know, not hint and hope, you know, it's not like, well, captain, do you think we should do this? Or maybe we should do this. It's, it should have been more affirmative. And if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. And while we see it a lot, uh, you know, again, around the rest of the world, like you said, John, <clears throat> excuse me, it does happen in our environments here. You have a brand new first officer who's flying a G4 with a senior captain. The last thing that that guy's going to do is really start challenging the guy who's got 5,000 hours in the airplane. But there's going to be times where, you know, you may have a little bit of complacency or distraction going on with the, with the guy flying the airplane who's in the left seat. And it's like, dude, I'm not comfortable with this. You know, you got to do something. And rather than, you know, have the captain respond, you know, hey, hold my beer, watch this. It's like, I, I've got to do something here. I've got to stop this chain because it's only going to get worse before it gets better. Right. And, and it happens not only, you know, in aviation. We see it a lot. You know, I mean, you know, as a supervisor, when I was working for the NTSB and you have an investigator who comes in and they hint and hope. Uh, about, you know, well, maybe I should do this, or maybe you should do this or whatever. It's like, just tell me, what do you think? What's the problem here? You know, and, and take more affirmative action based on more affirmative decision-making and decision-making in aviation is critical. You can't him haw, especially as that airplane is motoring to the ground and getting close because your margins of error. And of course your margins of options um dramatically decreases yeah and you know we see it outside of the country common i i taught i've taught school in india and in china aviation classes and uh, in talking to the people in both those countries it's evident that the pecking order is alive and well yeah and you know the other thing is is that you know within in I'll be the first to admit, you know, you're always concerned when you're dealing with a foreign airline or a foreign authority, because we had the, um, the Korean um, KCAB investigating the accident with us as the, the accredited representative. And we ended up making a uh, recommendation because they were part of their Department of Transportation um, and Construction, of, if I remember right. And they weren't a, quote, independent investigative authority. So when we were talking about trying to take corrective actions and that kind of stuff, of course, politics plays uh, very deep into these decisions that are made, whether or not to take corrective actions. We can make all the recommendations in the world, 
but whether they're acted upon and how they're acted upon are two different things. Plus, you know, who are we to tell them how to do business and how to make changes and, and how to run their airline and, and run their government as far as an acts investigation authority. But they were very receptive to a recommendation that we did make where we suggested because IKO Annex 13 and the processes of Annex uh, 13 suggest, highly suggest, recommend that you have an independent accident investigation authority because one of the roles that the NTSB plays because of its independence is to actually look back at the FAA and be critical of their policies and their processes and of course the regulations. If you're working under their umbrella, it's very hard to point the finger back at yourself. And, um, and the, the Koreans were very receptive and they eventually did split them out is as an independent accident investigation authority. So those are the positives, but you got to walk very, very, you know, uh, uh, cautiously when you're trying to express these kinds of things, because, you know, you can offend people very easily. The Korean um, airline was very receptive to some of the recommendations that we made. We had a very good interaction and that's a tribute to the people that were involved in this investigation, John. Um, you know, they could have easily said, you know, pound sand, we're not doing anything because, you know, they could have looked at this as a one-off or something, but they were receptive. We had a great established relationship and it, and it comes down to the interaction of people. And, and I think that that's why this accident and the recommendations that came out of it were so successful. Um, the FAA, of course, they weren't real happy when we started looking at their controllers. Um, our ATC uh, expert, Richard Wentworth, loved the guy, one of my closest friends. And, and it was fun uh, because, uh, you know, as we started to get into looking at all these ATC aspects and we saw that the MSAW system had been intentionally inhibited, of course, we started to question why. And it was because of the nuisance warnings, because Nimitz Hill does pop up. It sits right there on the approach of, uh, to, to Agania and runway six. And a lot of airplanes that are, are um, uh, being flown uh, on visual approaches get really close to the top of that hill as they're maneuvering around to get lined up. So there are a lot of nuisance warnings. And, the, and of course, the air traffic controllers got tired of it. So they reprogrammed what the boundaries um, or the, the standards were that would trigger an MSAW. Well, in this case, that worked against them. And of course, it inhibited the ability of the controller to one, identify the position of, of Korean Air 801, but two, give that flight crew very valuable information about their proximity to the terrain as they were approaching the airport. So, that was a, a positive. We, we identified that there was some phraseology. The controller failed to identify the, uh, or at least provide a position report to the crew as he should have, as he was clearing them. That too could have triggered their at least awareness to their proximity to the airport. They may have been confused about where they actually were in relation to the airport that may have triggered them 
back to a, a semblance of awareness had the controller provided them a position report. And then one of the other things that was of, of, of concern and for all pilots, and that is that the controller had an expectation. He never gave them any information about weather that existed on the final approach because he expected or assumed that the flight crew was using their onboard weather radar. So he figured, ah, they already know about the weather. I'm not going to tell them. When in fact, we were never able to confirm that. We knew that they were talking about the weather. Um, they called for the windshield wipers to be turned on. So we knew that they were in a rain event and, uh, you know, an obscuring event because they eventually said, you know, we don't have the airport in sight, don't have it in sight. But the controller just assumed that the, uh, the crew was using their onboard weather radar and never provided them any kind of weather information about what was uh, transpiring. So these little things, while they didn't, you know, get named in the probable cause, it was more focused on the fact that the, the captain failed to execute the, uh, the approach properly. And unfortunately, the other flight crew members did not chime in to, uh, to prevent that accident. And then of course the contribution was uh, training and of course the FAA and, and some of the, uh, the issues that I just talked about. Um, these are the kinds of small things that one benefit aviation and aviation safety through of course knowledge, but it's something that all pilots and all controllers and all airlines and all management people and even the single general aviation pilot needs to know. I always preach it. People have heard me say it for the last 40 years. Assumptions and expectations in aviation will hurt you or kill you. Without never it. assume, never expect that someone else is gonna help keep you out of trouble, like a controller. They may get diverted, with their attention, they may be complacent. They may have assumed that you are doing something when in fact you aren't and vice versa. And if you assume that the automation is correct and you assume somebody's going to give you a warning or you assume that the airplane is going to tell you, you know, you're doing something good or you're doing something bad, those kinds of things and that kind of reliance will put you in a position of jeopardy very, very quickly. You know, a couple of points I'd like to go back to. One is you mentioned ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, which is part of the United Nations, which gives us rules around the world, consistent rules around the world uh, to operate in aviation. So ICAO is a major player in the world environment, but they're not a policeman, right? So they can yeah. only, they only recommend uh, through their each country's ambassador ICAO is in Montreal, and the, the message is brought back to the, all those 192 countries that are part of it, and uh, they're supposed to drive the change. But you raised a whole bunch of issues, and as you were raising them on, on uh, problems that occurred that really didn't make the report, I, I was thinking, you know, we're not far off from all of that. Everybody, including me, we all think that we're the best Mm -hmm. And we're, we're better than most, but I don't think we're the best. And if you stop and think, it wasn't until 1967 that we started to get some semblance of independence in our accident investigation. Yep. When the TSB was created, 
but it was placed underneath the Department of Transportation. And that went on for uh, five years before politics entered into an accident and there was a political storm over it. And right up to the president of the, of the United States, a real, real slugfest. And then Congress in, in uh, 1973 passed the independence of the NTSB, a law that made the NTSB independence took, took effect in 1974. And uh, that led to what we have today. And it's copied by other countries around the world, but not everybody. Uh, yep. France and Italy still use judges to, to look at their uh, cases. And, and France is a little bit uh, not as firm with the judge because the judge defers to their accident investigation people. But Italy is very much uh, the judge runs accident investigations. So it's around the world we have those problems, those same problems. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, John, I mean, because ICAO, you know, it is recommended standards and practices. The way we do business here is the NTSB. We have this thing called freedom of information. A lot of countries don't have that. Things are kept uh, close to the vest. They're never uh, transparent. They're never public. Um, <clears throat> you, go to, you go to Canada. They do not publish a transcript of the cockpit voice report. At least they didn't for all, a long time. Um, others will hold it very tightly. And, and so people have to understand that when you're dealing with these foreign countries and these foreign airlines, especially if you're doing the investigation, not only here in our territory, but if we as the United States end up in someone else's jurisdiction where we are just the accredited rep to provide technical assistance, we have to play by their rules. And their rules are not necessarily our rules. So the information that comes out uh, the free flow of information. Um, we saw that a little bit with Malaysian Air, um, you know, MH370 and, and other accidents where that free flow of information, that transparency isn't necessarily there. Um, you and I have dissected the Indonesians. We know how bad, you know, they can twist the facts into a storyline that is not supported by the facts. And we're going to see, I guarantee we're going to see the same thing with Ethiopia, and I can't wait to dissect their final report because I guarantee, just like we saw with the Indonesians, they are going to have leaps of logic that are not supported by fact. The bottom line though, is that we all are working or at least trying to work for a common bottom line. And that is how do we enhance aviation safety? How do we take the facts, conditions and circumstances? We use that to our advantage to enhance safety so that accidents like this don't happen again. That is the bottom line, regardless of who's doing the investigation. How we get there, that's always a concern. And you've been on this side of it more than I have. I've dealt with it, but you always had to jump in the middle of it while you were at the board. And that is, there is politics in every single accident investigation in some way, shape, or form. And while people go, no, 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 that it is, I see it. I still deal with it. You deal with it. You dealt with it. And, and you can't get away from it. What we try to do is minimize or mitigate or even eliminate the influence of that politics in the process of enhancing aviation safety. And sometimes we can get it really close to zero. Others, unfortunately, they stick their fingers in it. And we see that. And you and I have 
pointed that out with Indonesia. Yep. And it, and it occurs here. I mean, I, as you were talking, I was thinking of two or three that I had to end up uh, right in the middle of, of uh, police, police and our investigators who, who uh, had a better idea. Yeah. We had to remind them who was in charge or, or, uh, or get to their bosses. I actually, yeah. I actually had to call the governor in one state because of the, uh, the, the area commander for the police was being a problem. Yeah. Even after I mean, that discussions, he was a problem. So I called the governor and that took care of the problem. So it's, you know, I didn't want all those, those pressures put on our investigators that can impact them on uh, their, their performance and their job. So and you, tough, like you said, it is tough. It, it, it really is. And I think one of the last things, and I know because we're running out of time, but one of the last things that came out of um, Korean Air 801 was the establishment of the international aspect of the family assistance uh, program, which uh, the board was required to, uh, to create when TWA 800 happened. Um, so we'd created it for the domestic piece, but Korean Air 801 ended up being the genesis for the international component because of the, the issues that developed between the, the families of the victims and, of course, the president of the airline. I mean, he showed up in a, several days after the, the event and family members attacked him. And that created a huge distracting storyline. And we ended up intervening, um, trying to, uh, to keep the peace with these family members. And of course, uh, the president of, uh, of Korean Air and the airline organization. And out of that uh, spawned the International uh, Family Assistance Program or Transportation Safety Program. And to this day now, it's been um, incorporated in many of the, uh, of the airlines and, of course, um, government organizations around the world. Well, I, I remember we started that as an executive order from the White House, and then they turned it into a law, and they had overlooked in the law the foreign carriers were operating into the U.S. And I remember... I was going to France to do something. And in the terminal, uh, I ran into their, I think he was the VP of operations. Now I'm not clear on that. But anyway, uh, who was not happy with the Family Assistance Act. And we had a lot of words. And he actually dragged me back to, uh, to the office building. And I had a, an afternoon session because you land there in the morning. And I'm dead tired. And I had an afternoon session with senior management. And I think there was even one of their board members there. But anyway, I was on the hot seat for the Family Assistance Act. And, uh, you know, I did my thing uh, talking about it and defending it. And uh, I escaped with my hide. I got out of there hmm. and went on with my business. And uh, I bet it was two or three years later, uh, I was back over into France uh, because of Airbus and, and all the work that's over there. We made many visits over there. And uh, I ran into that same individual again, only this time his uh, tone had changed. 
because they had another accident, some other country, and they implemented the, the family assistance plan that we sort of forced them to put it in. And it worked mm-hmm. in another country. So he all of a sudden, he was very grateful for the for the plan. Yeah. So, you know, oftentimes, our rules may not be the best. But sometimes, if you take what the intent of those rules are, and fit them into your own culture and your own country, uh, you can have a very good result with them. Yeah. Now, it's, uh, you know, I, in this particular accident, um, I, I and the team spent a lot of time interacting with uh, both uh, Korean air officials and, of course, the Korean government. And it is about relationships. And yeah, tensions do run high, attitudes and, and you know, the ways we do business or, you know, the way we point fingers here in the United States, a little different the way uh, a, lot of, a lot of countries and carriers around the world point fingers. Um, and, and it does take a, a lot of um, patience. Uh, you have to have a lot of patience. You cannot force your ideology on someone else. And we see that all the time. But it's all about safety. And, and again, like I said before, the bottom line is, how are we all working together to enhance or improve aviation safety? And while we may have our political differences and the differences in our cultures and everything else, I think, uh, I think aviation around the world, at least a good part of the world, has been improved immensely um, because of this interaction. And a lot of it comes through, of course, IKO and those practices in, in these interactions um, between investigators, not necessarily the politicians, but we as technicians, investigators at a certain level, we all speak the same language. And, you know, yeah, we all have to carry our own respective party lines, but we are in this, this brotherhood, if you will, where we get each other at our level. We don't care what's going on up there. We get each other at our level, and that's the way it should be because we're the ones that are driving the safety wagon. Right. There's, there's a, a couple of societies for investigators that have meetings, at least annually. Uh, I, I've been to a number of, of uh, meetings of, of the European accident investigators. I know you have as well. Yep. I mean, it's just sharing thoughts, ideas, and problems. Uh, you know, what kind of problems you have? Have you ever had this? How did you deal with it? I mean, that's all building blocks on a on an international basis to make for a better investigation and better understanding yeah. of the problems. Because, you know, I, and I, I say this often, but I haven't said it on this program, I don't think. When you've been to a major airline disaster and you get there, it has just changed you for the rest of your life. When you walk through that accident scene and see the devastation, uh, not only just of the piece of equipment that can be replaced, but of everybody that was on that airplane, it changes you forever. Yep. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what nationality you are. And, and we don't, we don't, uh, you know, compartmentalize that. I mean, as investigators, you know, we are out there. There was a loss of human life, and we've got to stop that from happening again. And over the years, when you look back, where, as you recall, John, I mean, statistically, 
we were having a you know one or more major haul losses around the world every single month. Yep. And now a major haul loss, not only here in the United States, which we haven't had in quite a long time, which is phenomenal for us, but even around the world, um, we have done a very good job in uh, in mitigating. We haven't eliminated, but we have mitigated um, immensely uh, the accident rate around the world. Right. The equipment is, is much, much better. In fact, from a statistical point of view, if you look back, uh, first generation jets with the 707s and the DC-8s. So if you look through, I think we're up to the seventh generation now, but each generation, the first to the second was better, the second to the third was better. And now we're on the right side of the curve because the, the equipment just doesn't fail. Yeah. What, now what we see is the, the people using the equipment make bad decisions and cause the equipment to fail. But along those same lines, we have created better pilots. We have done a very good job in enhancing and emphasizing pilot training, pilot understanding of, of aviation and utilization of the tools that are given to them in these aircraft, these very sophisticated aircraft. And while we will continue to have accidents related to decision-making, um, a lot of them now incorporate the use of automation and the dependence on automation and things like that. And you and I are going to have a discussion about the degraded pilot skills, the physical tactile pilot skills that pilots are complaining about. Because when all that pretty automation goes dark, you got to revert to what you know best. And that is, you know, you're sticking rudder skills and being able to fly the airplane and make decisions and, and that kind of thing. But the fact is, is that when you look at just here in the United States, the testament to pilots, pilot training, and of course, the interaction with the equipment that we're building. Um, we've done a phenomenal job in the majority of the world in curbing the accident rate substantially so that there should be no hesitation by the flying public to ever get on a major carrier, a legacy carrier anywhere around the world and not feel comfortable with the fact that they're going to get from point A to point B safely. Yes. Yes. So, well, with that little tirade, I'm going to uh, uh, encourage our listeners. We always appreciate um, our, uh, our listeners and our viewers and the feedback. John and I just got a bunch of emails on our latest show when we talked about Oshkosh. So we're going to be ciphering through all of that and talking about that on the next show. But uh, we appreciate your feedback, of course, your comments, what you like, what you don't like, uh, recommendations for things you want us to talk about. Uh, you can contact uh, John and I at our website, or both our website and, of course, our email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. We encourage you to write and, uh, and let us know what you think, how we can make the show better, what, uh, what interests you. Um, John and I, you know, sometimes get off on little tangents because we think it um, is beneficial. Um, you want to drive us back to center? We're happy to listen. And I know that a number of viewers and listeners have done just that uh, through their comments. So we take those to heart. We try to, uh, to incorporate that and we appreciate that feedback. So, my friend, I know that uh, you are going to talk to us about uh, our sponsors that uh, that keep us going every month. I'm, I'm sorry, that keep us going every week. I've yeah. lost track of time. I'm traveling so much. I can't remember 
you know, how, how often we're, uh, we're, we're actually doing this. But um, the fact is, is that I'm happy to be with you every week. And I'm happy that our sponsors continue to give us the opportunity to be together and do this show every week. You know, I like to remind you and everyone else that originally this show was going to be once a month. Yeah. And, and then we did quickly went to every two weeks and then they, we were, I'll call it badgered to do it every, every week. And it, it is quite a chore to do it every week uh, to find the time to two of us together to line it up to do it. Every yeah, week. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you and I are still doing acts investigation amongst a bunch of other things. And, um, but I love that this is the best part of, of my month, if you will, is doing these shows with you because at least this is our way. And I feel it my way of giving back. Um, I, I've been blessed with a career uh, with the NTSB and in aviation safety. And it doesn't benefit just me to take all this information and keep it to myself. And, and that's why I love uh, talking to you because I get educated by you and the other guests that we have on here. And hopefully we're educating the public. And uh, that's what it's all about. It's giving back. It's, it's giving the backstories. It's giving you a, a level of confidence that what's going on in aviation. And uh, we'll be talking more about aerospace and space um, in the coming months because that's where we are headed is uh, more to the stars. So um, while we look at it with, uh, with hope and grandeur and everything else, we know just like with aviation, there is always that high risk and the possibility for an incident and accident, but we're gonna have to learn from that to improve it. And, um, and, and so that's what the intent of this show is. And we will continue to bring you at least our perspectives based on the facts, conditions, and circumstances that we know and research so that you can have a more accurate picture of what's going on out there. And on a fun, a fun note, I can't wait for us to have Wally on. Yep. I'm working on getting her on. Yep. That'll be fun. Yep. For that experience. And so I, again, would like to remind everybody, the show is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance. So if you're a pilot and you need to have insurance on your airplane, or if you're a flight instructor, you need to have insurance or any kind of general aviation insurance, give a Vemco a call, 888. Oh, come on, John. You should have that memorized by I now. Wanna, I want to make sure I don't <laughs> mess it up. 888-879-0389. That's their number. Give them a call, or you can go online to Vemco.com. You know, and I, from a long time, I was saying, call them up. They're good people. They talk aviation. Well, I saw that at, at uh, Oshkosh. And if you wanted to talk aviation, whether you had a policy with them or you were walking by, they talked aviation. Yeah. Uh, they, they're good people to deal with. You're talking directly to the insurance company, not an agent that has to get somebody else. So it's, it's uh, a very good process. And... Okay, my friend, I'm leaving you with our last words. As usual, please. As usual. Everybody, everybody, if you're going to fly, please do a good job of pre-planning your flight, looking at that weather, your walk around. Do a very thorough walk around. If you think you don't have 
enough knowledge to do one, get a holy one of the mechanics at the FBO or wherever you get your airplane maintained and talk to them. I went, I often, when I looked at that picture of the cracked strut that you sent me, all right, that didn't happen overnight. All right, that happened, that was sitting there for a while. And uh, when they pull that off, I wish I had my hands on it. I'd like to put that under the microscope just to, to see how long that was cracked. But I'll bet you that was cracked for quite a while. And so do a good pre-flight. Touch your airplane. Don't just look at it. Touch it. Wiggle the flight controls. Wiggle the wing of the airplane. All right. And didn't we have uh, one of the Piper airplanes that had the wing problem? Wasn't it found by somebody who decided to? out of the clear blue sky, wiggle their wing yep. on the airplane. And all of a sudden it was different than what it was before. And yep. that's the issue. So please be engaged with the process. Be engaged with your airplane and please fly safely.